we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, I, I get grumpy. Any of you ever get grumpy? Never, I hear. That's good. Pastor Steve never gets grumpy, but I do. And it's ridiculous because if anybody has something to be rejoicing in, it is one of God's children. If we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, if there was a time when by faith we believed on him as our Savior, knowing that he died for our sins, was buried, and rose again from the grave, no matter how bad a situation gets, we have something to rejoice in. And not just something, but the thing. Sometimes people wonder, where is the joy that Jesus promised? Well, I can tell you it's in staying close to the cross. And so we observe the Lord's Supper because he instructed us to do so as one of the ordinances. But we also do it because as we stay close to the cross, we get an idea of who we are, we get an idea of who our great God is, and we gain perspective on all it is that he is and has done for us. And so sometimes people think the, the preaching of the cross and the remembering of the cross is really just something for unsaved people. But I want you to know that is far from the truth. That is far from the truth. We need the gospel every day. And so in Romans chapter 5, the word of God says this, beginning in verse number 6. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, God, excuse me, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray together. Father, meet with your people tonight. Help us as we approach Calvary once more to be in awe of you. Help us to have the proper humility the proper love and gratitude and wonderment that the cross deserves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's much to be said about the book of Romans and all of the doctrine that's included in it. Remember, doctrine is just belief in teaching. That's what that means. So when somebody talks about doctrine, they're just talking about what they believe and what they teach. And here we come to this passage written by the Apostle Paul, these inspired words to the church members in Rome and he starts off by speaking, when we were yet without strength. I don't know if you remember what it felt like to be lost. I don't know if you remember what it felt like to be lost. Oftentimes, people don't think about that once they come to know Christ as Savior. That seems to be so long ago. But perhaps there was a time when you can remember feeling the weight of your sin. Perhaps there was a time when you could feel the hopelessness of trying to turn over a new leaf and start a new life. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken with people that were in the bondage of addiction and they come to faith in Jesus Christ and after they come to faith in Jesus Christ and God gets victory over certain aspects of their lives, there is so much rejoicing that they have because their life is now so different than it was before. And before, it was filled with failed attempts to reform. I'm going to quit. I'm never going to use again. I'm going to quit. I'm never going to drink again. 
And it's not just about substance abuse. It can also be the idea of, I'm done with this way of living, constantly in fear and anxiety. I am done in this way of always living with what's going to go wrong and the despair that comes with it. I'm done with this way of biting words and cutting words and bringing other people down so that I might temporarily feel good about myself, only to come and to unleash all of that sin once more and not be able to find a way out from it. I don't know if you can remember what it was like to be so separated from God that you felt that there was no hope. Some people perhaps have that for a long period of time before they come to know Christ. The Bible says, and if you turn with me there just a few pages over in Romans chapter 3, in verse number 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody, every man, woman, boy, and girl has at some point in thought or in word or in action broken God's law. And because of that, we find ourselves in what many would call a hopeless situation. It's because only perfect people go to heaven. And unless you're a perfect person, you're not going to go to heaven. And so that means we need somebody to save us out of this situation. It says when we were yet without strength, when we had no ability, when we couldn't overcome our sin, when we couldn't make it up to God. I remember sitting at a Denny's with somebody, very spiritual place, uh, perhaps if, if you mean evil spirits, but I remember sitting at a Denny's talking with somebody, one of my friends, and sharing the gospel with him and telling him that, that he was a sinner and that he had broken God's law and that he needed a savior. And the idea of a savior was repugnant to him. And I know what he felt like because the idea of needing a savior was repugnant to me. It was something that I despised the idea of. And he said, if I've done something wrong, I'm going to make it up myself. I'm going to pay it back myself. And even if from that day on he lived a perfect life, having been made aware of his sin, what about all of his sin up to that point? And I think we all could understand that he had no ability to live a sinless life from that point on, no matter how good his intentions might have been. And so we find ourselves in this great place when we were without strength, absolutely without any ability or recourse. And we read the rest of the verse in Romans 6, in the second part of it, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. We're going to see in the next few verses the amazing condescension. I don't know if, if you've heard the word condescension before other than when someone speaks to you like a jerk and they're speaking down to you because they act as though they're above you and that you are below them. I want you to know that God is above us and we are below him. And the action of him dying for the ungodly, God, the perfect God, dying for the ungodly, that is amazing condescension that someone so high and lifted up would become so low. That's what it means to descend, to descend with or to us, to condescend. And so we have this idea that Christ died for the ungodly. What? Why would Christ die for the ungodly? In verse number seven, we're brought to the reality of what it would be like to give your life for someone. Maybe you've thought to yourself, I would give my life for my family. Maybe you've had that thought. I hope you're never put in that position. I hope I'm never put in that position. And then you start thinking about, well, wh who, who would I be willing to give my life for? Verse number seven says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die. 
He's saying, rarely, someone might look at a righteous person, someone who is doing the very best that a man can do and that they're, they're doing whatever is asked of them, and so they are a very, very good person, and they say, that person is so good, and I'm not where they are, I would be willing to die for them. That would be a rare thing. That would be a very rare thing. It continues on saying, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Not, not a perfect man, not a righteous man, but a good man. Right? Someone who is generous and perhaps is kind and maybe not as good as the righteous man, but maybe even someone would be willing to give their life for that person. And you say to yourself, I could see how someone might die for a righteous man. I could see how someone might die for a good man. But it says in verse number eight, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're not talking anymore about the righteous man, and we're not talking anymore about the good man. We're talking about the sinner. We're talking about the ungodly, the person who has rebelled against God and decided, I'm going to side with the enemy. I'm going to side with the devil over this great creator God who made me, cares for me, made a world that sustains me. Instead of partaking in all of his grace and glory and worshiping him for it, I'm going to spit in his face and rebel from him. And yet Christ died for that person. Christ died for sinners. I want you to know that sin is far worse than I think any of us understand. Sin is far worse than any of us understand. We oftentimes measure our sin against other people's sin, right? And you say, well, I'm at least better than that person. You perhaps have read of somebody that did something in the news and you say, isn't that horrible what that person did? Such a horrible thing that they did. What, what a sin they're going to have to answer for. But I want you to know that sin is simply breaking God's law. Whatever he says to do and we refuse to do it or whatever, whatever he prohibits to do and we choose to do it, that is sin. And sin is so bad, one sin is so bad that there's only two ways that it could be dealt with. One, eternal punishment, torment, and the flames and the blackness of darkness forever. Or it could be dealt with by the shedding of the blood of the sinless Son of God. And there's nothing in between. I want you to think about how bad a sin has to be for the punishment for it to be eternal. Now, we know from living here on earth that it, there's, there's degrees to this, right? If you get a traffic violation, depending on which number it is, you're probably just going to get a ticket if you get a traffic violation. If you do something, perhaps a greater crime, you might end up being put on probation. You may even end up with fines or, or perhaps jail time for some sort of misdemeanor. And as you get into a felony, as it gets worse, you may spend years, maybe decades in prison. For the things that are truly terrible, you may end up spending your entire life in prison. For the worst things that we can think of, we can imprison people for life sentences, or perhaps even multiple life sentences, though I'm not sure exactly what the point of that is. I'm sure there's some legal point to it, but you only get one life here, and you can't give it more than one time when it's taken from you like that. But I want you to think about what a terrible thing sin must be for it to have eternal punishment. You say, maybe God overreacted. Maybe God overreacted in doing that. I want you to know that God makes no mistakes. And he is the righteous judge. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer to that question is, yes, he will. And so when he looked at sin and he saw how terrible it was and that it required either a devil's hell 
forever. Or the, the, the largest, most unspeakable gift that has ever been given, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and the shedding of his own blood, I think that we see the enormity of what sin must be like. We see the enormity of what sin must be like. And God demonstrated his love for us. He showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to know that Jesus Christ endured a cruel death on the cross. That's why we remember this. We have the broken, unleavened bread to remind us of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we drink of the fruit of the vine in order to remember his blood that was shed. Look in Hebrews, if you will. If you look in the book of Hebrews with me, Hebrews chapter 12. I had a friend in college once ask me who grew up as a Catholic. She said, I wonder if Jesus's death wasn't that bad because he knew that he was going to rise again afterwards. And so he could, he could just sort of, you know, write it off as, well, it's not going to be that bad. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number two, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. There are times when we get wearied and we want to quit on God because things are hard. Because it'd be so much easier if we didn't have to uh, commit our finances to him and our time to him. And if we could just throw off all of his rules that he puts upon us so that we could live however we want to. And we can start to think that this is too much of a burden to bear. And he says, I want you to think before you quit on God, I want you to think about how unbelievably wrong it was that sinful men took the Lord Jesus as they did. And mocked him, lied about him, beat him, scourged him, and gave him a cruel death that only a criminal should ever have to die. We have not, the next verse says, you and I, we've not yet resisted unto blood. We've not had that degree of hardship or persecution or rejection that he has. And so let us not think that we cannot endure because the Lord Jesus and his great strength has endured so much for us. What amazement that God, not for a righteous man, because we were still sinners, not for a good man, because we were still sinners, that he died for us. Verse number nine, back in our passage in Romans chapter five, verse number nine says, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Much more than he, he's excited that he's saying we have been justified by his blood. Imagine being guilty of a crime. You're guilty of a crime and your day in court comes. Perhaps you're, you're taken in out of custody in a, a, a jumpsuit and handcuffs and set down at the table where the charges are read against you and every charge that is read against you, you know that you did it. You remember doing it. And it sounds worse and worse and worse as every crime is read off of the docket that you are being charged with. And you say, without a doubt, you're guilty. And everyone else in that room knows that you're guilty. The evidence is stacked upon you that even the spectators have no doubt in their mind, let alone the judge or the jury or the attorneys. And it comes time for you to make a defense 
And there is no defense to be made. There is no excuse that you could give, that I could give. And yet somebody comes into that room and before sentence is placed upon you, though you are guilty, that great Savior comes in, takes your punishment, says, I will be guilty of those crimes. I will pay the punishment connected with those crimes. And because of doing so, you're looked at by the judge. The gavel comes down upon his desk and says, not guilty. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared not guilty. And I want you to imagine God on his throne and the enemy, the devil, listing, railing accusations against you of all the wrong that you've thought and all the wrong that you've said and all the wrong that you've ever done. And he lists it off for everybody to hear. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, your attorney, your great defender, steps up on your behalf and says, those have been paid for. Each one of those crimes has been paid for. And you say, how has it been paid for? How could I, though I am guilty, be declared innocent? It says, by his blood. By his blood. Thinking back to the Old Testament, there were pictures of the Lord Jesus through the sacrifices that were made. It was foreshadowing of what God would do. There was a lamb that was often taken, and sometimes, depending on the sacrifice, other animals, and that they were prepared in a certain way, and their, their lives were taken. And those animals did nothing wrong. It was the pattern being shown of the innocent dying for the guilty, and their blood was perhaps spread upon the altar in such a way, and, and the body was broken and prepared and perhaps burnt in such a way so that it would fulfill what was asked of it and perhaps roll back or provide a temporary covering that's what we think of when we think of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was called by John the Baptist as he walked upon his baptizing one day. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. In the Old Testament, there would be times when they would lay their hands upon an animal and as though it was symbolically transferring the guilt of all of God's people upon that animal. And, and it, it, would be, it would die for it. One might escape, but the other would die for it. And we won't go into the details of those things, but I want you to know that is the great picture of the Lord Jesus. We escaped, and he paid the price. And his blood was shed. Look, in, if you would, please, in Hebrews 9. In Hebrews 9, we read about the necessity of the blood. I want you to know that the Lord Jesus did die for you, and that's important. The Lord Jesus did live a sinless life, and that's important. That made him a candidate to pay for your sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ did rise again from the grave. But I want you to know the shedding of the blood is particularly important. And though people would like to remove the bloody part of religion, I think the, the uncomfortable feeling that comes with the idea of blood being shed is necessary because it begins to put into our mind how messy our sin is. How messy our rebellion against God is. Look in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse number 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And so the Lord Jesus was not strangled. The Lord Jesus was not drowned. The Lord Jesus was not just beaten. He was pierced and his blood was shed. And as that blood was shed, that was the atoning, that was the covering of our sins. 
That was the only way that you and I could ever approach a holy God. Sin is so terrible, it's so terrible that it makes us enemies. Can you imagine having someone powerful angry with you? Could you imagine having someone powerful angry with you? I don't know all of the details of it, but perhaps you pay attention to politics. Perhaps you pay attention to world news. There's an oligarch that supported Vladimir Putin, that supported him in his war on Ukraine, and apparently not everybody is very happy with what's going on over there in the ruling class of the oligarchs. And, and somebody blew up the car of one of the oligarch's daughters that supported Vladimir Putin. How many of you read about that? You know what happened? Some powerful people were made very angry. And some powerful people used their ability to reach out and to hurt somebody who had wronged them, or at least perceived wronged them. Now, these are criminal people. God is far from that. But I want you to imagine the resources that it might take to do a, a bombing like that. God has far greater resources. And when it comes to the idea of him judging us for our sin, for condemning us because of our sin, it ought to be something that makes us quake. Just like we can't totally understand the, the vileness of sin, nor do we know the half of what awaits for us in heaven, I'm not sure that we can correctly understand what waits for people in hell. The old preachers would sometimes talk about that if, if you could open a trap door and look down into hell for just a moment, people who are holding off getting saved would not hold off anymore. And people who were ashamed to speak for Christ would no longer be ashamed to speak for Christ if they got a glimpse of what the torment might be. And it says, back in our, our passage in Romans chapter 5, it says, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. In Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, the rejoicing here says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You and I, by the blood of Jesus Christ, are saved from the wrath that is due to us. We did those things, the punishment should have been ours, but the Lord Jesus took it. And now if there is a time when you've called on him for salvation, you no longer are under that judgment or that condemnation. You cannot lose that. It's not going to come and fall upon you at some later date. Christ has paid for our sins in his own blood when he died on the tree for us. Sin is so terrible, it makes us God's enemy. Back in Romans chapter 5, in verse number 10, it says, For if when we were enemies, for if when we were enemies, when, when were we enemies? Did anyone ever decide, you know what, I'm going to be God's enemy. That sounds like a great idea. No, that does not sound like a great idea. It sounds like a terrible idea. But our actions spoke for us. Just like our forebears and Adam and Eve chose to side with the serpent by their actions, you and I, by our sin, have chosen to side with God's enemies. We were enemies with God. God is so holy that he can't even look upon sin. He is angry with the transgressor, with the sinner, every day. God is wrathful. And I want you to know, he also loves you. But you can be angry at somebody that you love. You can be angry with somebody that you love. And though he loves us with a love that we cannot understand, the idea that we were enemies should terrify us. Talk about somebody who at any moment could end that war in which we were enemies. At any moment. 
God could have revealed his power. One day he is coming and he will pour out his judgment upon the earth. And if you've read the end of the book, you know it will be a frightful thing. A terrible period of time. A terrible period of time. Would you die for an enemy? Would you die for an enemy? You say, why would I die for an enemy? Because then you could make that enemy that has wronged you and has sinned against you and perhaps even thwarted your work, or as we read about in the Old Testament, killed your people. Then they could become your friend and have their sins forgiven and live forever. And better people than you and I said, I'd rather die than have my enemies be forgiven. I'd rather run from God than have my enemies be forgiven. We, we read about that in the life of Jonah. I want you to think what it would mean to die for a true enemy. I don't even know if we have real enemies nowadays. Maybe you had a neighbor and you're like, that person is my enemy. Really? If they needed your help, you probably would have helped them, wouldn't you? Is there anybody trying to kill you? Anybody trying to destroy your livelihood? I'm not just saying that they throw you under the bus at work, but they're really after you night and day. I don't know that we have people like that, but if you could imagine someone like that and then being asked to give your life for them, and they're not just your enemy, they're a terrible person. And yet God, in his greatness, gave his life. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says if we were enemies, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Our relationship with God was torn asunder by sin. Sin destroys relationships. It always causes separation. And we were at odds with God, and yet Christ's death mended and restored that relationship. You see, usually when, when people are reconciled, both parties need to admit to some sort of wrong so that they can come back together. But God did no wrong, and it was all on us that we had sundered that relationship. And God, in his love, reconciled to us. How? By the death of his son. So much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The Lord Jesus Christ died to pay for our sins that we might have forgiveness. But on top of that, one day we will be saved not just from the penalty of sin or the power of it, but also the presence of it. We shall be saved. This is something that he is doing and his life will surely see us through. The life in you. When you become a child of God, you receive eternal life. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. I want you to think that the life that you have been given is not your life upgraded. It's not your light, life with leather seats and a heated steering wheel. No, it's a completely different life. It's the life of the eternal one in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that life that is inside of us will surely carry us through into the very presence of God, defeating when it's time death and hell and the grave for each of us. Verse number 11 says, And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. That relationship with God was brought back together. That relationship with God was brought back together because our sins and the wrong things that we did were finally covered. They were finally paid for. It was finally sufficient. All of the Old Testament sacrifices, the blood of goats and sheep and bulls, they, they could never be enough to pay for sin. 
But when the Lord Jesus gave his life, when he gave his body to be broken and shed his blood for each of us, finally now we have received an atonement. And that word received there is important because remember, the beginning of this says when we were without strength, when we had no ability, when we couldn't do anything of ourselves, that's when we received it. You and I did not do anything to deserve or to earn our salvation. We contributed nothing to our salvation except for the sin which made it necessary. That's all that we added to the situation was that sin. I want you to think about the gift that has been given, the gracious gift that God has given us. Sufficient payment has finally been made. What are we supposed to do about this? Other than observing the Lord's Supper tonight, what are we encouraged to do here as practical application? The first thing is to live in humility. To live in humility. Remember how needy we were. Don't get too far away from remembering what we used to be like before God broke through into our lives and not only saved us but transformed us. It's so easy to look down on other people because we have come so far, but in truth, we haven't come very far. We've been brought far. We've been carried far. Have you ever put a child up upon your, your shoulders and they said, look how tall I am. And they look all around and they have a huge grin on their face. What a smile as they look from a perspective that they could never see on their own two feet. And, and, and we can be like that. We say, look how tall we are. When yet we're like children on the, the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who did all of the heavy lifting. You and I just came along for the ride. And anything that we have that we could boast in is only because of what he did for us and through us. That's all that we have. And so when we live in humility, it allows us to think of ourselves not less, but less often. It's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we were condemned sinners with all evidence against us. We couldn't live the life we were supposed to. It was a gift. An unspeakable gift. Live in humility. Second, live in awe. Live in awe. We understand now how like, unlikely it is for someone to give their life for another. Even if they were righteous or good, it would be a rare thing. Yet, we were enemies and sinners. And God loved us so much that Christ died for us. He endured that cross. He shed his sinless blood for us. He became sin for us conquered our great enemy of the grave. Think about our unworthiness and his glory and let that put a smile on your face. Because he didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. What a, what a showing of love. And it should lead us to profound awe. If you are not in awe of what Christ has done for us at Calvary, it's probably because you either think too much of yourself or you think too little of God. Because if I think rightly about who I am and I think rightly about who God is, it was ridiculous for him to give his life for me. Someone would have to love me so much to overcome the great gap between me and God in matter of worthiness that that love, it, it puts me in awe. We call lots of things awesome. We call lots of things awesome things that are worthy of instilling awe, things that make us say, wow. But I don't know that we can even understand 
that word like we ought to when we think about the awe of God. It'll do a lot for you to live in awe in your Christian life. It'll let you work and live and serve and pray and love out of gratitude because we're always remembering that great condescension, that great stepping down of Jesus Christ out of heaven's glory to become like us and to die for us. Finally, to live in joy. To live in joy. We can rejoice at the atonement, at the covering that's been given for us. Pardon is cause for celebration. I want you to think that if you were guilty of all of those crimes and yet somehow you got out of that courtroom with a not guilty verdict, you would be pretty happy. In fact, you may be celebrating. You may do a little dance down those stone stairs in front of the justice building, right? You and I would be so excited if that happened to us, and yet it's far greater than that because the crimes that we did were far greater than any crimes that could be tried in a human court, and the payment was far greater than any payment that could be made, and the deliverance that we received was far greater than any deliverance that we could reproduce on earth. Now you are going to heaven. Now, wait, 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 wait. You are going to live forever. You are going to live forever in God's presence where there's no pain or sorrow or tears, where you'll forever be with the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you, with all of the loved ones that have trusted Christ that have gone on together, away from all of the toils and turmoils of this life, away from all of the nine to five and the grind and, and the rat race and away from all of the never having enough and the dissatisfaction and people looking down on you or passing you over because of your identification with Christ, you are going to live forever. If someone said, I have something for you that will let you live to 200 years old and you will be healthy and you will be clear-minded the entire time, people would be amazed and they would be so excited at such a discovery. I want you to know that you are going to live forever. And you say, I don't know, this world's kind of busted up. I don't know if I want to be here for 200 years. Right? I meet people that are towards the end of their, their journey here on earth and I, I remember them saying things like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. It's time. I'm ready to go. Maybe you would get that way long before you hit 200. I want you to know you'll never get that way in heaven. You will never cease to be amazed with the wonders that you experience. You say, won't heaven get boring? Won't we see everything eventually? No. No, we will not. Because the main attraction of heaven is the Lord, and he has no beginning, and he has no ending, and we'll never get tired of it. I know you saw the cartoons that I saw growing up, and you, you think that you're going to end up with a harp and little wings sitting on a cloud just strumming that harp all day. Friend, there is something far greater waiting for us. And you have it if you have Christ. God is now your father. You've been adopted. You've been welcomed into the family. God actually now lives inside of you. If you've ever looked at a, a superhero and thought it'd be great to have that kind of power, you listen to some story where someone achieved some sort of magical ability, I want you to know all of the stories of knights and heroes and everything that you have might they pale in comparison to the reality that you are living right now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because God lives inside of you. 
You're not a Jedi. You're not Superman. Those things pale in comparison. God lives inside of you. And He's for you. He's for you. His great commitment. You will live forever. Rejoice. Live in joy. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a moment? We have what we call a time of invitation where we invite you to act on what it is that God is speaking to you about. And I don't know what he's speaking to you about, but I believe that he does speak. I imagine that most of you that are here this evening would say that you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. If that's you, if you say, I know for sure that Christ is my Savior, that God is my Father, that my sins are forgiven, praise his name, I know it for sure. Would you just slip your hand up for me? You say, I know without a shadow of a doubt. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can put your your hands back down. You may be watching or listening online this evening. I want you to know that there is a great salvation that God has purchased for you at great cost. And he loves you. And he knows that you're guilty and he knows that you ought to pay the punishment, but he made a way for you not to so that you might be with him. Come to him tonight. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins and be your savior. I was in my bedroom as an 18-year-old young man when I knelt down at the side of my bed and asked Christ to forgive my sins and be my savior. You can do that right now wherever you find yourself watching this live or after the fact. Trust the Lord if you've never trusted him. But this is a family time. The family of God gathers together to remember, to rejoice, to celebrate in Christ's goodness. Maybe you've been grumpy. Maybe you have legitimately bad things going on in your life. Things that are out of your control, things that keep you up at night, broken relationships, financial difficulty, health problems. I want you to know you always have something to rejoice in if you'll keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus. With nobody looking around, with every head bowed and every eye closed, how many of you would say, God helping me, I'm going to get my eyes back on the Lord Jesus so that I can rejoice again? Would you just slip your hand up just between you and me and God? I'm, going to get my, I'm just going to get my eyes back on Jesus so I can have joy again. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're in a place where you needed to be reminded like I need to be reminded at how great God is and how undeserving I am. We oftentimes think of ourselves higher than we ought. Perhaps that's what we battle tonight. We need to bring that before the Lord. Whatever it might be, maybe you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, but you desire to. Let's say yes to the Lord tonight as we prepare our hearts to partake of this ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Let's do business with God, shall we? Father, be glorified now in this time of invitation. Help us to be filled once more with awe. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. I'd like to read a little bit of scripture. I'll head up this way as we do it, and as the deacons and others make ready to help us. 